Hello, everybody. Welcome to a very important episode of Generation Elect. Going into this week, we thought the Georgia runoffs would be the biggest thing to talk about, and we would have been very surprised to hear that the Democrats flipping the Senate would have been the third most important story at best. So our itinerary for today is we'll talk about the big wins for Alsop and Warnock, but first we'll start with the stunning riots and attack on the U.S. Capitol, orchestrated by Donald Trump and Josh Hawley that have led to a Twitter ban and possible impeachment. We'll talk about all the political ramifications of that, then we'll talk about the political ramifications of the results of the Georgia runoff. And we'll also close it off with some talk about Biden's cabinet. But we have a lot to talk about. It's been a stunning, confusing, and scary week, and we'll go deep into all of it. I'm Henry Reichman. I'm joined, like always, by Griffin Roder. What have you been up to this week, Griffin? Well, uh, I'm now 17, and... Happy birthday. Yeah. Yes, my uh, Friday birthday was pretty nice, and I feel pretty old, and... (laughs) Uh, a little nervous for the future because I have to start looking at colleges and such and have to take yeah. my PSAT quite soon. Oh, yeah. But things are going pretty well, I'd say. Yeah, I uh, I drove for the first time ever. I drove my car past your house yesterday. First time ever driving on the street. And I, I stalled into your snowbank. Kind of should have stayed on, the, on my lane. But yeah, very cool. You'll um, learn. I'll learn. Also with me once again is Jack Newell. How's it been going, Jack? It's going pretty good, Henry. Uh, right now, I'm just glad that you didn't drive by my house and take out uh, my guard. So, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll save that for today. All right, all right, <laughs> sounds good. Okay, so um, let's start with the thing everybody's been talking about. Surely, one of the most momentous days in U.S. history was Wednesday. Um, on that day, thousands of far-right insurrectionists and rioters stormed the U.S. Capitol whilst it was confirming Biden's win, forcing Congress people to hide underground, and causing five deaths and massive destruction, theft, vandalism in the process. It's insane. These riots were comprised of MAGA supporters, QAnon believers, and other deplorable uh, far-right and alt-right groups, and were cited to be at the hands of Donald Trump, who encouraged his supporters to question the legitimacy of the election and then told them in a tweet that he'll see them there on January 6th. Um, to say the obvious, it turned into a crazy scene. Um, what, what, what are your first reactions to all of this, Jack? Well, I mean, my first reaction is that this is a day that I'll remember for my whole life, really. Uh, and it was a point that uh, Schumer made uh, during his speech uh, hours after the Capitol was secured. Uh, I will say that while the riots were extremely disheartening and honestly, so sad to see and so crazy to think that this is in America. What was one inspiring thing was that, you know, hours later, we were able to get on with democracy and we were able to confirm Joe Biden as our next president. Yeah, it was a good ending to a crazy day. Uh, Griffin, your just your thoughts and reactions to what was just never seen before. Now, the United States Congress is a very unpopular body. There's no doubt about that. But the reason why these right-wingers attacked the U.S. Capitol was completely unrelated. They Mm -hmm. attacked the Capitol because they were upset that their party had lost ground because they lost the presidential election and the day before they lost the Senate with uh, the Democrats winning in Georgia. And the irony here is they were storming the Capitol not because they thought the government was unjust necessarily. They were storming the capital to keep their president in power, which I've almost never seen before. Like the last time I could think of something similar that happened was, well, I hate to say this, but you have to go back to 1933 when um, the German parliament building was sabotaged 
and it was done for political aims. Now, it looks like Trump could be removed from power, thankfully, but this is a uh, very dark day in America. I totally agree. I mean, I was uh, was finishing up school, I think, you know, and I I heard the news. A friend texted me, oh, look at the Capitol. And, um, you know, I'll be honest, my immediate reaction, like I hadn't overtly predicted it before it happened. But when I heard of this, I I wasn't surprised at all, you know, because I thought that Donald Trump in the last two two months of his presidency would not go out quietly and, you know, more impactfully as supporters who um, will do anything for him and treat every word he says as spoken gospel. Well, um, you will go to extreme, extreme, terrible lengths like this to preserve his, their support and try to keep him in power. So, I mean, if this is something that reminds you of an unstable Eastern European democracy, not <laughs> unstable Eastern European country, it's because it is really. And, you know, the rest of the world is looking on upon us with shame. Um, you know, there's <clears throat> doubt about whether countries should continue to engage in America because they're unstable democracy and how much this impacts the whole world at this point. So it's, it's really a crazy moment in American history. And it's one we'll never forget. And it's one that, you know, this guy, Donald Trump, who has had the biggest impact in American politics, I think I've ever seen. It's just, it's going to be his legacy, surely. Um, So how did we get to this point in our politics, Jack, where supporters of a candidate go out and do this? Well, I think that the the fire was was about to be ignited for a long time. Uh, But I think in 2016, with the rhetoric of Donald Trump, uh, that's what really sparked it and and made this political division that we see now so huge. And while it's important to point out that about this political division and how we should try to work to solve it, and that's something I definitely believe in, but that can't mean that we have to avoid placing responsibility on on Donald Trump for his part in creating the circumstances we're in now. Right, definitely. We have to, you know, to create unity, we have to create accountability first. And that's, you know, the point. So, I mean, Griffin, this has been a complete assault on our democracy. But who do you, what factors provided the fodder for this? Was it it right wing media, which challenged the election or Senator Hawley, which, you know, made that a living reality or Trump? Well, this is, uh, this took a while to happen. Now, in 1796, when he was leaving office, George Washington, in his farewell address, warned against the creation of political parties, warning how dangerous they were to the nation. Of course, political parties formed the Federalists and the Democratic Republicans, and in pretty much every election since, it's been an election between two main political forces, sometimes three, but... The political divides have furthered, especially in the recent two decades, like the Bush presidency, perhaps Clinton. um, Actually, I'd say the Clinton presidency. Newt Gingrich. Newt Gingrich. But these uh, these divides have been growing over the past few years. And one thing I feel is that America has somewhat stagnated and our world power status like. You have to consider 30 years ago, we were easily the most powerful nation in the world. No other nation was going to mess with us. The Soviet Union was falling apart and we dominated the world. We had several allies and we had influence in several other nations. But now that influence is declining with the rise of other powers, such as India and China, especially the latter, China. But 
With these divides growing and America starting to stagnate and several social issues starting to manifest, especially in this time, especially with uh, growing inequality, the divides between the two parties further, especially like 2010s, the Obama presidency into the Trump presidency. And then we get to right after the 2016 election and it's the political parties are more like cults than anything. And it, it would only be a matter of time until these like two cults would just use violence against uh, right. the other. And now I, now Trump definitely w- played a major part and so did Senator Josh Hawley, but you have to understand that they weren't the cause of the disease. They were more or less a symptom of it. I definitely understand that. Yeah. yeah. So you think that polarization was what manifested itself. Jack, how much credence do you give to uh, media like uh, Newsmax and Fox News saying to their viewers every night that the selection was stolen from them or uh, or Senator Hawley? Right. Uh, how much do you give the media in terms of uh, raising the temperature and making this into what it was? I think that for sure, um, OANN and um, Newsmax and to an extent Fox News played a big role in peddling this uh, unfounded conspiracy to their conservative audiences. But as we were talking about before, uh, we really got to this stage in our media where uh, every single news outlet, almost every single news outlet that is, um, is partisan. And, and there's a lot of bias on, on both sides of the equation. Obviously, you have MSNBC and CNN on the more uh, liberal side of that, and then Fox News, OANN. I mean, I don't even know if you can call OANN any news source, but yeah. Fox News at least. Uh, and it kind of creates these echo chambers where you only hear your own views being uh, put out to you, and that's what you end up believing. So I think that Again, like Griffin was saying earlier, Fox News is a symptom of the larger polarization we've been seeing for the last years. And this is where I had to reconsider. Uh, you know, I was always um, there used to be a rule thirty or forty years ago called the fairness, doctrine. the fairness doctrine. Yeah, yeah fairness doctrine, yep. where you know you had to news shows had to present both sides of the opinion in equal time, right? And I used I used to be against that, you know, and I thought the repeal of it was very good because I thought that opinion journalism, you know, journalism meant to persuade, was important to our democracy, but. I mean, looking back on this and looking back at the kind of echo chambers Jack was talking about that, you know, Fox has created and how, you know, the liberal echo chambers where no conservative will ever go near them, you know, uh, people lacking anybody to say the other side. Um, And we've seen the symptoms more on the conservative side of this. It's just completely damaging. And it uh, gets people in the mindset that, you know, these people are working against us and these people want to destroy what we need from them and donald trump is our savior and you know there is uh, nobody who can tell us otherwise because everyone else wants to lie to us so that kind of stuff makes me think that maybe we do need some more um some less polarization inside the media but um i feel like it also does transcend politics you know uh what do you think uh griffin about trump's character that made it so possible to incite this large number of people like it's a special case isn't it yeah because trump has the distinction of being not only a shrewd politician, but just a nasty person in general. Now, this is like a characteristic that isn't found amongst several other politicians. Now, there are certainly other politicians that are nasty, horrid people, but very, like, if you compare Trump to, let's say, Obama. Now, 
I will admit I do not like Barack Obama. And I um especially but this is only regards to policy. I think like as a person, Obama's, you know, a pretty affable guy. Yeah. But Trump is uh certainly not. And I think it's definitely part of his character and sort of his temperament. Uh he's always been kind of a uh a hawk and uh, very fiery it's just uh who he is i suppose but this certainly uh did not help his case right and it's it's also about the audience that he kind of uh pulls to him you know jack we saw some harrowing images of confederate flags references to QAnon, mm-hmm. gallows and nooses just insane stuff similar to Char- charlottesville right so like why do you think uh Donald Trump has pulled together this base of uh, ethno-nationalists on the alt-right, white supremacists. How has that been empowered by him? I mean, you look at what he says and what he does, and it makes sense that he's able to attract these kind of people. Uh, Obviously, most Republicans have normally not been as as for minorities as Democrats (laughs) have, but none of the, not many Republicans in recent history have been so overt with their horrible racism. Uh, And Trump Trump has, and it's no surprise that because of that, he's attracted white supremacists and anti-Semites that really flock to him and make up a decent portion of his base uh, along with things like QAnon. And it's just, pretty sad but it's not surprising when you look at what he does right and you know back to the echo chambers talk you know parlor a lot of conservatives are signing up for parlor and it was i know it was just banned from the app store but it's still a massive uh, database for conservatism and you go on parlor and i've never been on it but what i've heard is it's just an endless stream of QAnon that you know these democrats are like i don't even want to talk about it because it's just in the, in the most insane conspiracy theories that only grow so griffin do you think that I mean, like, there's no way this doesn't get worse, right? This just keeps getting greater and bigger, right? In terms of the conspiracy and the white nationalism. Yeah, it's very hard to combat that. And I struggle to see how in the next few months or years, there's really a solution to any of this, especially if, like, we're still one country and we don't (laughs) split into several yeah and it's also important to mention that like the people rioting the people storming the capitol were not you know they were not they were not tea party republicans who wanted uh you know lower tax rates they wanted free trade these were you know governed on social issues they were the alt-right who believed that donald trump you know it was it was a cult for donald trump and it wasn't anything overtly political so i think that was interesting any last thoughts on the the events jack before we talk about the response uh, just that it was really a failure by uh, Capitol Police leadership uh, not to put more security at the Capitol because we knew these riots were coming and they didn't have enough manpower to effectively uh, repel them. Yeah, they, they opened the gates for them, too. It was crazy. Oh, yeah. Uh, could I add just uh, one little thing? Sure. Yes. So these people don't represent the entire Republican Party. We do know that. I agree. But... One of the issues is that with this event occurring, it sort of allows left-wing authoritarian more policies, such as, you know, surveillance, censorship, and crackdowns. Those efforts are now galvanized because of what happened not too long ago at the U.S. Capitol. And it's it's a dark road going ahead. And many Republicans who were opposed to Trump 
very opposed to the storming of the Capitol, are now seeing causes that they fought for being such as personal liberty and uh, being fought against I get what you're saying. Future. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a momentous day that's going to shift political, you know, views on the world for a long time. So, you know, in terms of the political response to it, um, Donald Trump himself uh, put out two statements before his account was suspended. Um, one of them, uh, one of them uh, said, go home. We love and support you. And the other one said, uh, this is what happens when they steal an election from us. So, uh, I mean, Jack, there's no other opinion besides that this will live in infamy as a terrible, awful, insightful response. Yeah, I agree. I mean, uh, not only Donald Trump, but Senators Hawley and Cruz, to an extent, uh, really tried to incite this for their own political gain. And it's something that they will be judged for by history for, for years to come. Yeah, Griffin, you agree that Trump only fanned the flames with this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's pretty crazy. Um, so, I mean, you know, his Twitter account was suspended. We'll talk about this uh, more. But how much blame, Griffin, do you give Holly and Cruz for this? I mean, they certainly uh, put a lot of their um, efforts into questioning the election and, you know, giving these people uh, validity to kind of go and storm the Capitol and do terrible things. So do you think that, like, Republicans are having sort of a civil war in their party and Holly and Cruz are getting so much blame all around? Uh, yes, I do feel that the Republican Party is on the brink now, and it could almost fracture um, in future months. Although I also do feel that a uh, break in the Democratic Party could come eventually, much later in the future. I agree. Yeah, there's definitely factions on all of that. Uh, Jack, you give Holly and Cruz tons of blame for the rhetoric that they've uh, fanned up in the past few weeks. Yeah, I mean, they they've done nothing to combat this and have actively helped it. I mean, Holly was literally there uh, the day of the riot at the Capitol egging them on. I right. mean, and I mean, you hear, <laughs> this was one of the, my favorite stories um, from the riot and all that. Uh, but Mitt Romney, as the protesters entered the Capitol building, shouted out to Ted Cruz, something like, you know, this is what happens and, and put a lot of blame on him for, for trying to fan these flames. Yeah, and there's a, you know, there's a reasonable argument that these people should at least be censured and, you know, the Senate should consider, because, uh, you know, like what they did was they very legitimately uh, incited an attack on a federal building, right? So, I mean, that, that kind of stuff shouldn't come without accountability. So I hope that happens. But um, the ultimate accountability is impeachment. And that has been floated all around from the Democratic Party, even some Republicans latching onto that train right now. It's expected that articles of impeachment uh, led by, I think, Jamie Raskin and uh, David Cicilline will go into effect next week. And there will be a floor debate and a vote before the end of Trump's presidency. Um, Griffin, do you think impeachment is a good idea for the Democrats? Well, I guess to establish precedent, um, Although one thing that would be kind of funny is you have Pence as president for like three days. Yeah, that all that makes William Henry Harrison's presidency look long by comparison. Jack, you think we should go down that train for the next two weeks? Uh, I do. Uh, I think the easier and quicker option would be the Twenty Fifth Amendment, which Pence and the cabinet would have to agree to. But if not, impeachment is what we should do and hope for an eventual conviction in the Senate, uh, because one of the things that conviction would do that the 25th Amendment or resignation wouldn't do 
was that it would bar uh, Trump from seeking political office in the future. Yeah, and it's also... Which is something that I think a lot of Republicans probably want in the back of their minds. I mean, you look at what Trump has done, he's completely destroyed their party. I mean, during his term, they lost the House, the Senate, and the President. Right, and it's something that even, like, you know, even far-right Republicans who have their own eye on 2024 want. They want Trump to be barred. Because, right, if Trump decides to run again in four years, there won't even be a primary. Like, that's, I mean, maybe you'll have one or two challengers, but, you know, it's it's going to be crazy. Um, yeah, but in, in terms of impeachment, there's also a symbolic uh, benefit to it. You know, the only impeachment, the only president impeached twice. And it's a show to the rest of the world and our allies that this kind of stuff doesn't come without accountability and doesn't come without pushback, right? You know, because right now, a lot of the other countries, as I was saying earlier, are looking down upon us. So this is our chance to show that this is not right, even in America, and that we can, you know, try to combat this. So I think that impeachment should be... Uh, should be definitely voted on. I hope they take a vote on it this week. Uh, Griffin, I mean, with last year's impeachment, uh, there was a zero chance of it, you know, going through the Senate. But do you think that there's a, a non-zero chance of this one actually working and a conviction? Yeah, I think it's definitely greater than zero. And um, now the Republicans that voted, um, whatever that motion was regarding results in Pennsylvania and Georgia, Whichever Republicans voted um, to try to overturn those results, I see uh, voting against impeachment. Of course, yeah. Perhaps uh, more Republicans, too. But I think there's a decent shot that Trump gets removed uh, before January 20th. Yeah, which re- and I mean... You go ahead. Okay, and, and I mean, this would be a move that would be definitely different, but uh, there is precedent for impeaching and convicting you know, a public officer like this after they have left office. I think it was Grant's secretary of war was impeached and convicted after he left his post. So that's also another thing that some will consider. And I believe, I mean, we'll have even greater numbers if that occurs. So that that's something to look out for as well. Yeah. And all the Republicans who, uh, who didn't, uh, vote last time they knew he did something wrong but they didn't want an angry tweet about them you know don't have to worry about that anymore so i, th- I mean we're seeing uh i think murkowski and uh murkowski and toomey already said that they support impeachment and ben sass ben sass said he'd strongly consider it which i think he would and you know collins her justification last time was that he learned his lesson that didn't age very well so i mean i think you count Collins. like i think the numbers could it build up. terribly the numbers could build up build up yeah i don't know yeah I mean, this is exactly what Democrats warned last time, that if we don't have him have consequences for such behavior now, then he's going to do it again. And the Republicans said, oh, wait till the election. Let the voters decide. And we waited till the election. The voters decided. And he's doing this behavior. And it's about the ramifications of that same election that, you know, caused this insurrectionist attack. So I, I don't know. I just I hope that Republicans can get a conscience and we can get it right this time. But yeah. So um, the other big news, I think this was either Thursday or Friday night, probably Friday night, was that um, Donald Trump's account was banned from Twitter. Um, He has been a presence on Twitter, to say it lightly. Uh, You know, I don't don't think anyone's had the same social media impact that he has, you know, basically putting out his whole policy in tweets. It's like it's like the lifeblood of his presidency. Griffin, what, what are your reactions to Twitter's move to ban Donald Trump? Well, I'm not surprised. And go in like 2017 i thought trump would be banned from twitter long before 2021 (laughs) however he lasted and in his long history of having a twitter account he 
spewed some ignorant, vile, and disgusting content. And he violated the terms of service on Twitter. However, I must say that Twitter's near monopoly on the social media market is a little concerning in and of its own, right? Because when you can when you think of social media, the only social media apps that anyone over 30 has are Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. That's only four. And, you know, that market is not a free and open market and flush with competition. There are very few options. And Twitter, having a near monopoly and being able to shut down various accounts. Now, Trump's account was not the only one that was shut down various other uh right-wing accounts even like some libertarian and actually some far-left accounts were shut down in it was almost like a purge very recently and sure they were violating twitter's terms of service but twitter's monopoly on you know that that market is frightening because oftentimes they arbitrarily pick which accounts to shut down and there are some accounts that they should shut down but they don't and additionally twitter is allowing accounts like um, the ayatollah from iran and members of uh, the ccp and we all know what the ccp is doing in um to the uh Muslims, yeah, the Uyghurs in Western China. So was it okay for Twitter to ban Donald Trump? Yes. But I am very uncomfortable with their uh, state enforcement options. Yeah, and we'll get into the cold contention stuff about, you know, what the role of them is on the market. But um, uh, Jack, do you think, uh, I mean, Jack, me and you are both uh, liberals who, but we both believe in, you know, right to free speech, right to free expression, you know, not silencing those who disagree with. But this is one of those times where Trump deserved to be deplatformed, right? I agree. I mean, I think it's preposterous for Republicans to claim that this is some violation of First Amendment rights when Twitter is a private company. Uh, And it's kind of ironic, given their general support for private companies and the ability for private companies to refuse people based on their religion. Uh, But for, I mean... Until about two weeks ago, I was against Twitter banning Trump's account for reasons that Griffin mentioned. I mean, I think the open dialogue and of people whose views are different than us is important. And I viewed censorship as, as something that isn't good, obviously. Uh, but in the last two weeks, Trump has genuinely incited violence and been really responsible for the deaths of five people. And I don't think that can stand. I agree with some of the hypocrisy that Griffin mentioned as well. I think it's pretty stupid that the Ayatollah and certain uh, CCP accounts can continue tweeting uh, when Donald Trump can't. But overall, I agree with this this decision by Twitter, but I don't think it should become a pattern. Yeah, I think that, um, yeah, I definitely agree with you in that this is the last straw that broke the camel's back and that this is the first time that you could make a direct link between words and, and real world consequences. Um, I mean, like, you know, this is different than people chasing a conservative speaker off campus. Right. Because, you know, uh, this is like, um, 
I mean, my view on free speech, First Amendment, is that you should be allowed to have whatever platform you have unless your words are directly causing real world pain and suffering. And I think in this case, it does. You know, I think that there are some things Trump has said before that are incredibly racist, incredibly inflammatory. And those opinions are deplorable and should be condemned. But, um, you know, this is the but you should only be deplatformed if you actually cause violence, if you actually cause death, which Donald Trump actually did. So I think that this was completely the right move. And I'm completely happy with it. I do hope that Trump I I do hope that Twitter uh, has a more stable, um, you know, and more consistent uh, record on this. Like they should definitely ban uh, Ayatollah from Iran and um, the CCP accounts. So I hope that they, you know, come out in the next few days with actual uh, rules and guidelines because it kind of feels like they're making it up as they go along. But I don't have a specific problem with these decisions. Uh, so, yeah. And I, and I mean, you use the word deplatform, which, you know, is accurate in this sense. But it's not like Donald Trump can't just call up any right. major news network and give an interview on national television. I mean, this isn't some terrible crackdown on conservative voices. Donald Trump can literally speak to millions of, an American, of American people whenever he wants. But it's more concerning, I think, that this eventual censorship by Twitter could affect people that don't have the voices as the president of the United States and they use Twitter as one of their only means right. of communication. And that's where we'd like to see more clarification. But in terms of, you know, the debate around this, lots of Republicans saying, oh, it's not fair that a few, uh, a few rich people from big tech get to control these massive political decisions. Well, you know, they're the same people who advocated against government regulation into private businesses for decades to come. This is like the Ayn Rand worldview that, you know, these people should be able to control their own business and there should be no large government platforms and regulation that, you know, make their own decisions for them. So Griffin, do you see a bit of hypocrisy on that whole kind of thing right there? I think the CEOs of big tech are against regulation that impacts them personally, but if it impacts like smaller competition, they'd be all for it. Now Twitter is a private company, although I would more or less consider it a, uh, a I'd put an asterisk on that because Twitter it was formed um, and you know, it's a company just like any other. However, whereas companies generally have to compete with others and provide the most efficient price and focus on providing a benefit to the consumer, Twitter is essentially immune from that. And the reason why is because that market is so regulated and so subsidized that it's near impossible to be able to compete with those big giants. That's the thing. And uh, as such, Twitter has a huge monopoly and they're, they have uh, used their powers, their terms of service too broadly and banned several accounts. And this also happened on other streaming sites. Uh, like look at um, Twitch recently, Twitch, uh, the streaming app. There's this um, emote, the uh, the Poggers emote got banned, <laughs> even though you couldn't really find a connection between that and inciting violence. And well, Pogchamp. Well, yeah. What do you have to say? Well, I w- I was just gonna say. I mean, you talk about uh, smaller companies trying to compete with Twitter and Facebook and other social media giants, and that generally not going well. But I don't know if any of these small companies are competing for the same 
business model as Twitter if there's more variety, because more variety generally means significantly less people on Twitter. And at that point, uh, you know, social media doesn't look as much the same as it does in Twitter right now. And I would say we need some more regulation on big tech, but there are certain options that you can choose uh, when you're trying to uh, go to a different platform and stuff like that. So I, I think we need some more regulation. But Yeah, well, it's interesting because, you know, all of 2018 and all of 2019, Elizabeth Warren's, you know, message was that the big that that government needs to be you know knocking on the front doors of all the big tech tech companies and they need to be involved in facebook decisions and involved in amazon decisions and now that's after this ban it's become the position of ted cruz that's where i see a lot of hypocrisy you know in terms of what private companies can and can't do and you know the the limits and do they have to provide justification for this or you know if it actually has an impact on the markets should the government then be involved in that so i think it's an interesting debate but i think twitter in the end made the right decision in doing that um, so yeah, we have, um, plenty more to talk about, uh, you know, after all of this week's events that were unforeseen, uh, the one thing that we didn't know what happened this week was the Georgia runoffs. And, um, those were complete toss up races. Nobody knew how they were going to go, but in the end, the last two elections of the Trump presidency and of the 2020 election cycle ended with Ossoff, John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock flipping both Senate seats in Georgia, giving the Democrats a 50, 50 Senate majority. And, uh, you one of the biggest wins for Democrats in a very long time. Uh, Griffin, what are your thoughts on this, your immediate reaction? Well, I was a little surprised. And in the uh, last pod that we did over by New Year's Eve, I was predicting that the Republicans would win in both of these Senate races. As per tradition, uh, Republicans generally fared better in runoffs because they won the runoff in the Senate seat in 08, and they won the Secretary of State office in 2018 in a runoff. But this is uh, the first time a Democrat has won a Senate seat in Georgia in 20 years. Hasn't been since uh, Zell Miller in 2000. Mm -hmm. And now one thing that really fascinates me is you see how much like the political demographics of Georgia have changed and the voting patterns, because if you looked at a Democrat winning Georgia in, let's say, 1996, you'd see like this huge block of blue all across like rural areas of Georgia, especially in southern Georgia. Whereas the suburbs of Atlanta were ruby red, very Republican. And now it's almost switched where Democrats have like huge margins in the Atlanta metropolitan area, and they have a few scattered counties uh, throughout the rest of the state, like maybe a college county or a uh, majority black county and uh, Savannah. But the rest of the state, including several counties that were ancestrally voting for Democrats, voted for Republicans. But it was the huge margins that were garnered up in the Atlanta metropolitan area combined with depressed Republican turnout in rural areas that allowed Ossoff and Warnock to surge to victory. Yeah, uh, Jack, you were right about this. You said last on um, last podcast that Ossoff and Warnock would win. And this is the happiest time I've felt that you've ever been right about something. Uh, but um, yeah, so the reasons that you cited last podcast that, uh, you know, Republicans were inclined to sit it out, that Democrats are doing really well at organization and turnout. You think that's why Warnock and Ossoff got across the line? Yeah, I think it is. And it was 
really encouraging. Uh, I, I was very glad to see it. And I, it was one of those races where we'll have to see now whether this was an anomaly or whether this will be a trend of continued Democratic wins in Georgia. It'll be interesting to see uh, later. Uh, I believe there's one coming up in yeah, two years, uh, the Senate race in Georgia. Yeah. And whether Warnock is able to hold on to his Yeah, seat. it should be really interesting because, you know, the situations that there's a lot of situations that were unique about 2020, you know, uh, usually you don't have uh, a president uh, casting doubt on those systems and a president who pretty much refuses to campaign for the candidates. And when he does, doesn't even talk about them. And, you know, there's there were signs in Georgia, some some of the Georgia's most red counties that said, don't vote. It's going to be rigged either way, either way, you know, and this is completely unfounded. But it played to the Democrats gain in the end because so many Republicans just sat out the election. And it's it, it's strange. But I mean, you know, that was a big a big reason why Ossoff and Warnock won. But one must not discount the influence of Stacey Abrams, um, who sat out the 2020 election cycle to organize in Georgia. And she you know, won everything. She flipped Georgia blue as a presidency for the first time since Bill Clinton. And, you know, she tirelessly uh, got a great group of you know progressive organizers together that uh, probably did some of the most uh, backbreaking, relentless work for a political campaign we've seen in modern history that uh, delivered Ossoff and Warnock um, a win. And the reason I thought that they wouldn't win was because I thought that the base that Stacey Abrams got, uh, you know, majority black, mostly young, uh, I thought that was a fragrant base that, would vote for the presidency, but wouldn't stay engaged for the Senate race. But I got to give Abrams more credit than what I uh, thought she would do, because to to get that kind of turnout in November is one thing, but to do it for a runoff Senate race, which doesn't always make the headlines of the presidency race, you know, that's that's really hard to do. So I think the organization uh, definitely played a lot of it. Uh, Griffin, do you think that Georgia stays blue that Ossoff and Warnock win re-election, or was this a special year? Now... Uh, one of them is up in 2022. I Warnock. believe it's Warnock. So Warnock, I feel Warnock's definitely has a big target on his head for 2022. Now, it's going to be a midterm election in a Biden presidency. And uh, with several... Uh, oh, Jack left. You can rejoin. Well, with several... You have several seats that um, are up for grabs, and most of them are held by Republicans. So Georgia is one of those few states that has a Democrat in a swingy state um, in 2022. Because on paper, 2022 is like what 2018 was for Senate Democrats. Um, Because 2018, you had several Democrats in red states and in uh 2022 you have republicans in states that went for biden like pennsylvania and wisconsin um north carolina didn't go for biden but it was close um so republicans have limited options to make gains in the senate in 2022 i mean there's new hampshire uh but they would probably need sununu to run and georgia is definitely a prime target so it's going to be a rocky path for Warnock to win re-election in 2022. And given the historical trend of midterm elections, I would say that Warnock loses. But nothing's a certainty. Uh, we'll see how the next few months, yeah. years play out. Um, do you think that Georgia, you know, this is the first time in, you know, the modern kind of voting base we have in the United States right now that Georgia went blue. 
Oh, uh, in 2008, you, you know, you saw Colorado and Colorado uh, and Nevada go blue for the first time. They've kind of maintained their status as solidly Democratic states. Um, do you think Georgia becomes like that, like the Virginia that goes blue and never goes back? Or do you think it becomes more of a North Carolina? You know, it could go either way, Griffin. I feel like it's going to be more of a North Carolina in my opinion. Yeah. But Jack, you think that um, uh, there's a good coalition in Georgia and Democrats can remain competitive, if not the favored party there? Yeah, I think it'll be, I still think it'll be a swing state. I think we'll have the advantage there. Uh, You would think that there are more and higher things to come for Stacey Abrams after a remarkable success here. Um, I would think that she either tries to run for governor or maybe uh, even greater and I wonder how much her specifically organizing ability uh, played a part in this. So I think that it will be a swing state that leads Demo- leans Democratic, but especially in the age of post-Trump, I don't think it'll be solidly blue. And in terms of Georgia, one thing, quick point I'd just like to make is, while this is very inspiring and, and great for Democrats, uh, Georgia kind of covers up an overall failure in some ways during the Senate races this year, I mean, we were expected to do so much more and we ended up really getting bailed out by Georgia. So, I mean, we need to focus on that. Right. We blamed our losses, you know, I mean, Maine, we still don't know why Susan Collins won. It's just kind of a shock, but you know, North Carolina and Iowa swingy races that really could have gone our way on a good night. Um, We lost the Senate seats. Uh, we blame that on, you know, the Republicans talking about defunding the police. We thought that they snapped up the centrist vote. And we said on the podcast after the election that the key to Democrats winning was uh, playing it moderate, trying to get how many centrists you can. But that's that wasn't the that wasn't what won us Georgia. It was it was high turnout from the left. So, Jack, does that no, challenge think, your thesis? I, in a way? I try to make my thesis this time. Exactly. It's just different in different places in the run for the place you're running in. I have no issues with, I mean, even though I may disagree with her, I have no issues with AOC running on a super progressive platform in one of the bluest districts in the country. Uh, But I do have an issue with... But Georgia's not a blue state. I think there are less... I think the the issue of turnout is more important in Georgia given uh, the demographics in cities and making sure we get out the uh, African-American vote. Uh, and that's not necessarily the case in a place like, you know, West Virginia or Montana or Iowa. Right. And there are distinctions to be made uh, in these places. And I think it's unfair, as some progressives have done, to criticize moderates for running on a moderate policy uh, when they're running in a district or state that's completely different. Yeah, and I agree with you. I think that, like in 2024, if we want to defend John Tester's seat in Montana, we have to be completely moderate and appeal to the centrist. If we want to flip Texas in 2024, I think we have to look into the untapped potential of all the left-leaning Latinos who don't vote. So yeah, place by place, definitely. Uh, so Griffin, now that Democrats have the Senate, uh, what do you think changes in the legislative body? Uh, how does this change Biden's presidency? Well, for one, it's going to be a very contentious Senate given that simple one defection of a Democratic senator will lead to, assuming all the Republicans are uh, opposed to a piece of legislation uh, that the Biden administration wishes. So if all the Republicans and one Democrat uh, 
defect and vote against the legislation, it's shot down. So that will lead, I think you mentioned this in one of the earlier episodes, where you could have Joe Manchin being like one of the most powerful members of the Senate and like Susan Collins. And they're going to have a key role in what goes through and what doesn't go through uh, the U.S. Senate in the early months of the Biden presidency. And also with the U.S. House, there are a few vacancies and... Uh, with Biden appointing some Democrat members of Congress like Cedric Richmond and Marcia Fudge, as well as yeah. Deb Holland. So currently there are 222 Democrats in Congress. You take out those three and the Democrats have 219. Now, the Republicans, I'm not actually forgot how many they have, but they're in the 210 somewhere. But 219 is. Now, they're going to be special elections, so those seats will eventually be filled, and it looks like they're all going to be filled by Democrats. I mean, there's no way a Republican wins in uh, Ohio's 11th district, where Fudge is from. But with that margin, like, 219 is barely enough, barely a House majority. In order to have a majority in the U.S. House of Representatives, you need 218. 219 is a uh, a, like a little safety margin and with many Republicans and you have uh, several of the Democrats in Congress are fairly moderate and uh, just like the Senate, it's going to be moderate Democrats and moderate Republicans too are going to have a key role in determining what path. Yeah, so Congress is tight, but Jack, this definitely soothes some of the headaches Biden had yeah, I think, a week ago, right? I mean, the other thing we have to keep in mind is the Senate filibuster uh, restricting a lot of the more progressive legislative agenda that, that might have been accomplished otherwise. Uh, I think the biggest yeah. implications of this uh, win in Georgia and the Senate is uh, it'll be a lot easier for Biden to confirm judges. And that's, I think, the biggest thing. Uh, we can leave a lasting impression uh, in the judicial branch, like honestly, Donald Trump did, and that'll probably be remembered as one of his largest accomplishments. Uh, other things that I think we might have broad support for, you know, $2,000 checks and stimulus. Uh, there's a chance at increasing the federal minimum wage, maybe background checks, uh, dreamers, stuff like that. I think we have a chance getting passed, but obviously stuff that's more out there. Uh, I don't think we have a chance of getting done. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like uh, something like uh, that will never get passed in a well, green that, deal. That was never going to get done. If Democrats yeah, had a super majority of sixty seats, we wouldn't get that passed. Um, but uh, if um, you know something like a cap and trade on carbon, or uh, as Jack was saying, universal background checks, or if Stephen Breyer retires, you know now we can solidly appoint somebody to fill a seat, right? So there's a lot of stuff there. Um, I mean, maybe the most ambitious thing we could do is. You know, you get bipartisan support, a bit of bipartisan support for something like Supreme Court term limits or some kind of reform. Like, uh, you know, a lot of doors open up to this. And uh, Mitch McConnell still controlling legislation during a Biden presidency would not have been an ideal scenario at all because it would, it would have completely uh, negated all of what Biden's policy platforms had to get done. So even something like a watered down version of a public option, you know, expanding 
expanding Obamacare and uh, having, you know, public insurance uh, have a bigger role to play in the whole healthcare system. So there is definitely a lot of doors that open up for this. So, but as Griffin was saying, Joe Manchin, we shouldn't most sleep on cinema, you know, Kelly, yeah. uh, Collins, Murkowski, either, especially uh, the Arizona senators. I think they'll definitely prove to be pretty modern. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, I think the Arizona Agreed. senators, um, they're, they're, they're moderates, but they're not as willing as Manchin to well, destroy I mean, Manchin is, Yeah, the I mean, Manchin party. has never voted in a deciding you know, vote against the Democrats. A point that... Will he? he will. I, I think Manchin will simply try to block any legislation that he wouldn't vote for from getting done. I don't think there's any votes that go to the Senate floor that Manchin votes against the Democrats on. Maybe, yeah, maybe. But it, it'll be interesting. I th- yeah. And also, it looks like in 2024, he's going to have to either retire or just lose because I think the age of Democrats in West Virginia is pretty near over because the he last, kind of comfortably um, last other time. statewide. Well, yeah, he won in 2018. Um, well, I wouldn't say comfortably because he won by a lot less. It was than a lean D race. Yeah. But yes, but one thing you have to consider is. Manchin's the only Democrat left that is um, a statewide elected official in Democrat in West Virginia, because the other one, uh, Purdue, the state treasurer, lost uh, in a landslide in the 2020 election. And you also look at like the West Virginia yeah, state yeah. legislature, which in 10 years ago, six years ago uh, when was like, Democratic controlled. Or, well, yeah, six years ago is Democratic control. And in 2010, the Democrats had a supermajority. They had 70 or 75 seats in like the, I think the House of Delegates, the lower house. And now it's the the opposite. Republicans have three quarters of, like, yeah. So, like, you look at how much states change and how West Virginia was perhaps the most democratic state of the 1900s because it, uh, it still went to Democrats even as the South went from blue to red and it voted for Clinton. And then in the 2000s, it just swung hard against the Democrats and became very Republican. Splitting too. In, very in four years, we might be in a scenario where um, Susan Collins is the only senator who represents yeah. a state that didn't go there. I think there that's right definitely possible. That's, that's an interesting scenario. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, like I mean, it would take Sherrod Brown and John Tester losing, but that's, those races are going to be close. And, you know, it's, it's crazy how polarized you've gotten. Like when Obama started his presidency, he had two Senate seats in West Virginia, a seat in Nebraska, a seat in South Dakota and in North Dakota. Like, yeah. And there was a Democratic congressman from Idaho. Yeah, it's insane. That would never, ever happen. I don't know. I think we've gotten more polarized down the ballot, you know, in the past few years. So it's really interesting. But um, yeah, so after, so now that we're done with Senate talk, uh, last bit of news before we wrap this up is um, Biden had some big new appointees, which kind of had a 30 minutes in the news spotlight before they kind of got drowned out. But Jack, well, obviously appointed uh, Merrick Garland for AG. Uh, I think it was smart for him to wait until after the Georgia elections. Uh, so now he knows with 50-50, uh, there's a good chance that he can uh, fill Garland's seat uh, on I uh, forget which circuit, but uh, important oh, right. judicial yeah. circuit. Uh, he also made some important uh, economic uh, appointments. I believe it was um, 
the Boston Mayor uh, Walsh. Yeah, Walsh. Marty Walsh. Uh, and then the oh, Marty Governor, Walsh. Uh, Gina uh, Ramada. Yeah. Ramonda. And both of those are good economic yeah, appointments. Yeah. I mean, Griffin, what are your thoughts on uh, this? Gina had, I believe it was, she took Rhode Island out of one of the worst uh, states for employment to one of the best and really presided over great economic recoveries. So I'm excited for that. Definitely. Uh, Griffin, you think Merrick, Merrick Garland's might pass the Senate with like 96 votes to his name? You know, he's, he's that well-liked on both sides. Uh, you know, I mean, he definitely suffered a lot of heartbreak a few years ago, but this is this is a good appointment for him. You think it's going to work out well for Biden? Yeah, I think that should work out pretty well. Um, Raimondo is a pretty moderate Democrat. Um, and also, yeah, I don't think she's, she's well liked amongst the Rhode Island electorate. Um, neither is her lieutenant governor. So we'll see how that goes in 2022. But getting her uh, out of there and into the... I believe the Commerce Department, I don't think should be too much of a hassle. Walsh is a bit of a tougher one because Walsh is definitely one of the more progressive members of the Biden cabinet, along with um, Deb yeah. Holland. And um, because you have to consider that many of uh, Trump's secretary, of, like I think Trump's past two secretaries of labor were both like corporate lawyers. And um Walsh, Walsh is not. Walsh was a, uh, I believe he was a lawyer that represented yeah, labor they want, unions. Yeah, they want unions. Um, and, you know, he's uh, economically more progressive. He's, I'd say, more similar to Elizabeth Warren. And he might be tougher to uh, get through the Senate, but, I mean, it's, I don't, I don't see it, him being, like, Destroyed, yeah. shot down, and completely And you know what this rejected. opens up the door for? It opens up the door for Boston Mayor Michelle Wu, right? You know who was who was running and now has an open field for her. So that's that's interesting. And that, yeah, and now Perhaps. that Democrats have the Senate, we can confirm Neera Tandon as the OMB director. So, I mean, oh. I'm hoping that yeah, I like Neera Tandon a lot, and I, I, I do not like. We disagree on that. Neera Tandon is great, um, but yeah, I hope I hope that gets through, but. I mean, that's one of the headaches we don't have to endure now, hopefully. Uh, but yeah, I think that's about it for his cabinet. Um, capping off a really crazy week in politics. Uh, yeah, so I think that's everything there is to say. Um, if, you haven't rate, if you haven't rated or reviewed our podcast yet, make sure to do so. Uh, we're going to, going to have a lot of features as, you know, Biden's going to be inaugurated next week. I'll have an interview coming up with, with someone really interesting. So stay tuned. Um, keep listening. And thanks so much. Have a good one. Bye.